Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today. And, you know, you feel like uh, sometimes uh, you can't, you're flying blind and you can't necessarily see the path that you're on. And then all of a sudden the fog clears and you wind up and you you look out and you're on this precipice and you're really high up the mountain much farther than you thought you were and you look down and it's a little bit petrifying because you've ascended so much and you recognize that when you connect with certain spirits the goal is not to look down but to keep going up and I get a chance to do another installment with a guy who has been at the bottom of the pit and recognizes that realism is activated at that point and there's nowhere to go but up. And he certainly took the baton and a higher state of consciousness and took that into a prolific career as a musician. Uh, amazing session guitar player and live performer. Hadley Hawkinsmith, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thank you, Jake. I don't know if I can live up to those words, but... Uh... <laughs> it's okay. It's all, you know, it's all a fantasy in my mind uh, to a degree. I Hadley, do you remember when... Or what, it maybe the better question is, can you talk about when the efficiency model came into the recording studios? Do you remember that in the late 70s, there was like um, an adherence to how to, pl- which drums to hit? Or I, I know a lot of drummers talking about, you know, basically coming in and the producer said, just play straight beats. Don't play yourself. Just play what the last hit tune was. Once you started oh. to get this efficiency model in, with the addition of mechanized rhythm, it started to constrict music in my mind. You can hear it on records, not everyone, but that efficiency. Do you remember? I mean, because I know that you you were there uh, before that, and I just wonder if you remember what your feeling was when that started to come into play in, like, I don't know, the late seventies. Yeah, <clears throat> one of the things I remember when that started happening was I quit doing so many um, live sessions with a bunch of other live players in the room, but started doing more overdubs. In other words, each uh, musician was kind of separated, and uh, it didn't feel the same at all. There wasn't the chemistries where you could play off of each other, and um, it, it sounded more isolated, and I think... I just enjoyed it so much more when I could play with a full rhythm section. It was just more inspiring to me. Like when, like as a, as a as a naive, about to turn forty three year old. I I mean, was that simply because the bean counters started to get involved with the actual musical application and the process of making music? So therefore, they they just didn't understand. Because for a long time, like, I just remember in the late 60s, uh, people like John Densmore, you know, the doors were on Electra. Jack Holtzman was like, <clears throat> you know, it was a kind of a boutique label. But, you know, the bean counters were kind of like, hey, you know, um, I don't know what this music is, but it's selling records. And that's all I really ca- we care about is making money. So let's just leave the music to the people that know it, that know it best. And... Is is it is as simple as saying it was a cost-cutting measure, or do you think that um, people's responsibilities, people started to do things that, that, that they were not staying in their lanes professionally, so to speak? Yeah, I think it was uh, cost-cutting, but I think it was also um, kind of a retreat from a lot of the producers from taking a chance. Right. Up until that time... Uh, producers would believe in an artist or a song or whatever, and they would say, "Let's go for it, full time. You know, let's let's uh, let it be totally unique and be the artist." And of course, that's what happened with the Beatles, and and we saw what happened with them. But now, or lately in the last twenty years, you come into a recording session, and uh, maybe I'm playing a guitar overdub, and someone says. Uh, yeah, we want kind of a Larry Carlton vibe on this. Right. 
Instead, well, yeah, Already exactly. I've been put in a straitjacket. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where, where, like, you were hired to be Hadley. Like, why can't you just be Hadley? Why can't you serve the song? Why can't you just serve what the song is asking for? Why do you have to comp somebody else's chops? That that is weird, man. It's weird, but it happens a lot. And this is certainly. <clears throat> but let me, me let me ask you something. You said it because I totally am with you. In modern era, it happens a lot. Can you talk about when it didn't happen, especially when you guys came out to LA in those kind of mid '70s sessions? Like, what was that feeling like? Of complete and the ability for you to already understand the spirituality of music, and then being able to serve the song without somebody saying, "Hey, man." You know, can you just play like Tedesco or, or Barney Kessel or whatever? You know, like it was like just whatever you feel, that's what you should play. Well, I hate to go spiritual on you. That's but okay. As a Christian, I believe God made each of us totally unique. And the thing he wants from us is not patterned after anyone else. It's to do what we can do best and uh-huh. what he has gifted us to do best. Uh-huh. And uh, anytime you go into a recording studio and you're given too much instruction, it's almost like that switch gets turned off. And and then kind of an autopilot pop record switch gets turned on. And uh, they're not the same thing at all. That I you you nailed it because uh, I've had friends who are who've, you know, <clears throat> they're not world renowned producers, but they've they noticed that when they were producing and or leading records that when they started to direct people on how to play, they lost that person's soul. That person checked out, just like you were saying. Um, like with Andre or when you got out to L.A., were there like some of those those mid 70s sessions, late 70s? I mean, can you talk about uh, some of the unsung uh, producers or engineers that that really allowed Hadley Hawkinsmith to connect with his own unique spirit and sound. Well, um, my lifetime friend Bill Maxwell was a perfect example of that. Mm. And we were doing a lot of sessions with a, uh, a Jewish Christian artist named Keith Green, who I just thought was maybe the best songwriter I ever, ever worked with. Just a beautiful artist and singer and and a keyboard player. And the one thing about Keith, he was a very good uh, piano player. So when it came time for me to play a guitar part, he wanted it to be basically a duplication of the piano part. Right. And uh, <laughs> because that's all he'd been hearing, because he was mainly doing concerts by himself. Uh, but the problem is those parts didn't, didn't, didn't work on the guitar they didn't they didn't feel right and and they didn't connect with the guitar so bill was kind of (laughs) like the go-between to say keith your piano parts are great but we've already got them so let's let hadley do something different almost like a counterpoint thing and uh keith keith finally saw the light on that he was uh (laughs) obstinate at the first few times but he got the feeling and we, we made some great records. What, um, what was it? You know, it's, I'm not, I see his records. Um, what was it about his lyrics that really inspired you and, and made it so authentic? Well, the lyrics were Christian, no doubt. But the, the thing that was beautiful was both the writing and the lyrics had passion, true passion. It's it's not something you can work up. It's not like a Pentecostal p- preacher you're getting everyone excited and the organ starts going crazy and everyone gets emotional. This was like the real thing. And uh, some of the songs were very powerful, but some were very sweet and soft, almost like talking directly to God. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Keith personally, I actually stayed at his place a, a number of nights, Debbie and I, and we got to see how he lived. And he lived it. You know, he was a real deal. And he was a huge influence on Debbie and I. I'm looking for this quote. Um, 
I mean, can you talk about, I, I can't find it right now. Um, when I interviewed Omar, Michael Omardian. He, oh, wow. You know, I got to send you that interview because like on Muir, like the albums that he did um, on like in 74, 75, like, um, you know, White he, Horse, White Horse, White Horse, Adam again. And again, right. you know, like, like um, these were. I was asking because he talked about the way him and Stormy would write lyric lyrics and and almost continue <clears throat> within the biblical within the texts and the stories to continue to create images of 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 mystery or mysticism within uh, the te- within the within the songs. And he goes, today's modern Christian music is worship music. You're praising someone, whereas before there was always a bit of uh, mystery, uh, and that's what made those early. And I would assume sun, sun, sunlight is something similar to that. Um, can you talk about in your mind uh, how the the I don't hear a lot of mysticism in um, gospel music, if that's the right word to use, or re- Christian music today. I hear a lot of um, understanding of who God is, um, right. who, what he's about. Um, it's sort of man's view of God. That's not what I heard. It, Keith Green, uh, I think was not like that. And, and Omar wasn't like that. Can you talk about, um, how the, the messages of Christian music have, have changed? Well, I personally feel like mysticism is a part of Christianity in that, Although we believe the Bible is the Word of God for us, the things we need to know right now, it's certainly not an explanation of everything. Hmm. It's not even an explanation of the universe, really. Uh, In other words, God has a lot of things going on that maybe he has chosen not to tell us about or even thinks we're not ready to hear about yet. Uh, So in that way there's room for this mysticism. But I think what's happening today, there's been so much out-and-out false doctrine, false teaching, TV preachers, this kind of stuff, that uh, people are are leery of getting fooled or getting off on the wrong track. So maybe they've uh, overcorrected a little to the other side just to make sure everything's according to Scripture, according to what we believe God has, has told us for the here and now. How do you, I mean, I just, like, Hadley, I mean, I, you know, you're just a, just a human cat like everybody else, but I mean, how do you, um, in your own way, uh, not that you're somebody who's dogmatic or <clears throat> wants everybody to feel the same way you do about um, God, but I mean, what for people that have overcorrected and now are just really hugging the guardrails and losing objectivity and curiosity and mysticism as it relates to what is actually out there in the universe? Can, can you talk specifically about maybe a, a time about how you ultimately open people's minds back up because they are afraid? because they've either been yeah. duped before or something like that. I mean, in your own way, because I just feel like that's a major crisis because, I mean, having a religious compass and a spiritual guide is absolutely essential, uh, you know, to keep for a lot of people. But when you begin to hug the guardrail so closely that there is no mysticism or magic or possibility out there, then your view of the world starts to narrow and then fear and quite honestly, hate comes into play. And I just wonder how you, how you work with other cats uh, being. Yeah. Well, hopefully not hate. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, just, you know, not say like I, you know, the idea that, you know, you still go around and you hear, uh, you know, again, I don't dwell in these churches, but you know, people will say, you know, listen, uh, serve God and uh, get close to Christians, but if if they're not Christians, let them fall away or something like that. Like there's still like a lot of you know sort of. Um, well, anyway, that's certainly not the case at my church, but I'll tell you something I've observed. Yeah, and and it kind of ties into being a musician or trying to be really good at 
anything you're trying to learn, uh, the more people grow, I think the more expansive they think. Hmm. Um, in other words, I think uh, maturity brings freedom. In fact, Christ talked about freedom. He said, he who I have set free is free indeed. Well, uh, that freedom is part of what we're supposed to be living in. And uh, it's hard to strike the balance. I think everyone has to do it uniquely for themselves. But uh, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is there to help us to strike that balance. Uh, but no, I, I don't like this idea of of, uh, gosh, what's the word? There, there's a word that they use. Deb, do you know the word? Um, I'm sorry, Hannah, I wasn't. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> she's, she, like, you, you assume she's glued to the interview, you know? <laughs> you're, in other words, you're going by the law. Right. Yeah, yeah, Simply yeah. by the law. The letter of the letter of the law, the letter of the law, of the law. like you're going right by the, the strict the interpretation exactly. of the way, yeah, and that, yeah, exactly. That, Jesus problem. said, "I show you a better way," and it's based in love. He says, "If if you're acting in love and living your life in love, you fulfill these commandments automatically." Can so, you give you an know, example in your life of when you didn't go by the letter of the law, but stayed within the the, the construct of your? of your relationship to God? Well, some people might say that me taking the job to tour with Neil Diamond, which I did for 34 years, you know, playing those big arena concerts, they would say, well, that, I'm not so sure that's of God. You know, you're going to be around uh, worldly people. You'll be around loose women. I mean, all this stuff. Sure, sure. That, and that was all true. But the thing is, I felt the freedom to do that because I knew it was a unique op- op- opportunity. And I also knew that Neil's show is not X-rated. That's uh, right. So That's right. And, 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 you, and it was on you to keep yourself sovereign or, you know, don't get involved with those, uh, I don't know, uh, extemporaneous kinds of a pleasure, so to speak. You know, it's on you. I mean, two two things would come up against you. I think most guys touring, one would be the sexual aspect. Right. And thank God he kept me totally free from that. I, I don't claim I did it totally in my own strength, but with God's Absolutely. help, I did. Absolutely, man. And uh, the other thing is pride. Hmm. Very easy to get puffed up in pride especially if you're standing in front of, say, 30,000 people and they're all screaming. Of course, they're screaming for Neil, but a lot of these people seem to appreciate the band also. And uh, so if I started feeling a little bit of that, and I'm talking about while on stage, while performing, I would just make it a point right then to just talk to God. And I would say, Lord, I'm so thankful that you've got me up here in front of all these people. You know how much I love to play guitar and play great music. And here I am doing what I always dreamed of. And I'm just so thankful for that. And I almost can't believe it's happening, but it is. And I felt the joy of the Lord just kind of enter my heart when I would do that. And I did it numerous times. I want to read you this from a... I would assume a dear friend of yours, uh, and I'm just so I I love the cat so much. Um, it was an interview I did with Ron Tut, who I believe you probably were on Neil Diamond's tours with. Is that correct? Oh yeah, 34 years. In fact, Ron Tut is the one who's responsible for me getting the gig. Yeah, I think he might have told me that. I'm going to send you that interview. He's but he said, you know, I was asking him. I said, and I maybe before I read his quote. I'll just ask you, I said, you know, because, I mean, this is a guy, like, I don't need to tell you, I mean, he played Lalo Schifrin, he was on tour with Jerry Garcia and Elvis, obviously, the Neil Diamond stuff, it's interesting because 
you know, we live in this t- all, all great records he played on in L.A. Oh, well. my God, Cats. Uh, dude, for, I mean, dude, it, 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 I don't want to shortchange the guy. A, a Hall of Fame cat. Um, oh, definitely. You know, no doubt. But he, you know, I said, how do you, when, I mean, again, it's, you're meeting, like you said, you got, you're meeting the worldly people, you're staying in great hotels, you got great sound systems, um, you're getting paid well, Um and yet my hang up, and I asked Tut this, being that he's been in so many different s- settings as you have, how, not professionally, it's not about professionalism, how do you in- get inspired to to play when it's basically, uh, it's kind of the same set every night? I mean, you're there as entertainers because you're there to play the hits that people came to, to see you. Yeah, they, they paid. Right. And so how as a musician, when it becomes so predictable, I mean, I just come from that jazz influence where you play the head of the tune, you leave the head of the tune, and, <laughs> you know, maybe everybody comes back in on the downbeat. But, you know, ultimately, you're breaking up time and form and having a ball. And I realize yeah. that a lot, most lay people, including myself, they pay good money to go see Neil Diamond, and they want to see the hits. But as a musician... Who has that? I was asking him, how do you stay, and I'm asking you, when you're going on a run and there's so much security and so much stability, as long as you can stay away from the, uh, you know, the women and the drugs or whatever else and the, and, the, and the tantalizing stuff, how do you stay inspired knowing that everything, that every show is basically... Uh, I don't want to say cookie cutter, but it's basically the same. You're not really stretching out. Uh, how do you, as as a musician, stay inspired? Well, uh, first of all, I got to hand it to Neil. Even though we had a similar set list uh, night to night, he always liked to change up a few things, even if it was just uh, song connections, mm-hmm. order of the songs. Uh, and and plus he would ad lib. Not everything was an ad lib, but a lot of it was. And he he was a very funny guy, good good comedian. <laughs> mm. And uh, but the other thing, I think uh, being a, a session player, that's kind of my background, as well as Ron Tutts. You realize that you make you make the recording sound like the first time. Right. Ideally, that's what it's got to sound like every time. And I say, got to. I didn't feel like I had to. I wanted to. Mm. Very different. Mm. In other words, I still felt like, well, you know what? I still haven't played uh, Sweet Caroline as well as I can play it. That's probably a not so good example because the guitar parts are pretty simple. But there were other uh, songs that had intricate guitar parts. And I always felt like I can do this better. And so I really would struggle every night to to do it just a little better or maybe come up with a different part. I I didn't always have to play what was on the record, so I was free to experiment to a certain degree. Have you always been, I mean, even though, um, you know, just in general, like in talking to guys like uh, Terry Haggerty from the Sons of Champlin or, uh, you know, Hadley or, you know, <laughs> Steve Cropper, you know, in some settings, it's, it's all, you know, it's like, do you have you do you believe that or was there a time when you um, like, have you ever played the same solo the same way once? Have you I mean, is it always different? And because it's just that's who you are. You know, some some people just memorize, like you said, what the solo off the album and they just play that the exact same way. It's very rote. And then some people are so excited and the vibe is so high or like you said they're they're saying I want to play the song like it's the first time in the studio that ultimately whatever comes through you is different every time I mean are you right. one of those cats that never plays the same solo the same way once yes I love it even if you played the same notes you might emote it differently right right can you, you know how do you how do you how, I want you to talk to younger cats about if that's a if that's unconscious, is that something that that you can work on by breaking bad habits? How how, how do you go about that? Because I see, again, it, it goes to this idea of playing it safe, don't taking chances. They're afraid they're going to clam a note when, in fact, the clams are sometimes the magic of a record. 
So I mean, what what what's some of those? What what's a way to develop good habits as it relates to playing every solo differently every time? Um, I think being in touch with your heart because your heart is in a little different place each night, and each time you play a song. So that would be where you start. Other than that, I would say just uh, breaking up patterns. Right. Um, in other words, you can still, if someone says, uh, this is one of Neil's songs, say the songs of life, a ballad, but we don't have Neil today, so we just want you to play it on guitar. And you play the melody, and it would sound different than Neil, but, but people would get the idea, right. you know, right. great melody the song, which is one of my favorite songs he ever wrote. And uh, I kind of forgot where I was going. No, no, break, breaking, up, breaking, breaking up patterns, breaking up patterns. Yes. The idea is I wouldn't be trying to play it exactly how Neil sang it, but I would be trying to keep it melodic and keep it sensitive to the actual spirit of the song. And, you know, great songs to me, uh, they have what I call a mirage between the the lyrics and the music. Mm-hmm. The two reinforce each other. And if you have a song that doesn't have that, it's almost like the two are fighting each other. And that's one reason I haven't been real big about playing heavy, heavy metal praise music <laughs> or something like that. You know, just as a weird example. No, explain. I mean, you're telling me that that, that popular type of heavy metal has crept into uh, uh, gospel or Christian music? Uh, Not so much heavy metal. I I think the idea is a lot of the songs that speak to me about the Lord or about his love, his forgiveness, Hmm. salvation, these are all very positive things. And they're sweet things. And it's just hard to get a very loud blasting guitar you're right 100% louder than the vocals it almost sounds aggressive and maybe slightly hostile it seems to go against what you're singing about Hmm. (sighs) talking to Hadley Hawkinsmith here uh, part two just such a humble humbled opportunity to be able to speak to him you know um we got the the game name that voice I'm going to put this in for you um take a listen to it and we'll come back Okay. Spiritual thing is is basically when you're playing, and it's just not bebop. This is other music too, but bebop is in jazz is probably that's the high end of what we do mm-hmm. as jazz musicians. But but just the spirituality comes from it's it's like it's like something. Now this this may sound abstract, but it's something that Wayne Shorter said to me one time. He said that the only way you can really 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 play is that you have to go to the store and buy some milk for your grandmother. You know, <laughs> when he said that to me and a drummer, Omar Hakim. Now, he had a few few drinks, a few old drinks. Right. I said, wow. But a couple days later, it hit me, you know, because, you know, it's like to come, if you have one of those kind of families, you go to see your grandmother, she says, go to the store and get me some milk. And you go there, there's a love, there's a... There's something, there's a love for something other than just what you're looking at. It's like your own personal love, which, you know, which could come from God, which could come from the force of of life. It could be whatever it is that makes you, that you think makes you tick. Mm -hmm. That if you tap into that, whatever that is, it's not, it's not a material not the instrument it's not the notes it's it's the life force it's this it's it and that is very when you operate on that band that's uh that's or on that uh, frequency in life that is very spiritual hadley i know we're getting real deep again but you want to take a guess <laughs> <at who> that, <laughs> you want to take a guess at who that is well you know at first it was something about the voice i thought could that be jay graydon you know, but it's, I know. Yeah, go I ahead. know it's not Jay. No, it's no. I, he, I haven't gotten to him yet. <clears throat> that was um, <laughs> my first interview with uh, 
from 2014 with Stanley Clark. And, oh, wow. Uh, and, you know, here he is. Uh, we were talking about, um, you know, he, you know, because a lot of people, Stanley came up before Return to Forever <clears throat> playing upright bass, and he was playing with Horace Silver, and he was playing with Joe Henderson. And, you know, maybe not so much Horace, but, like, Joe, like, those guys would let the accompanists, like, go free. I mean, they couldn't play, like, out and ruin the song, but, I mean, they would allow those cats to have unbridled freedom in their instruments. Yeah. And as a result, a lot of the music that was pressed on records has this, well, you just feel that everybody's operating on a, it's not on this ground frequency. It's like a higher level. And I was trying to get him to articulate it. And he came up with this story that Wayne Shorter told him over drinks one night where if you really want to play spiritual music, whatever genre, it's like going to the store to get your grandmother some milk. And I, and I wanted you to, in your own words or in your own life point of do you know what he's do you know what that means what does that mean to you because to me it means an undying it means a overarching devotional uh, creative opportunity where you are at a certain point at, at a certain frequency of total openness and if anything you're trying to get everybody else up to that level through your playing it's just it's beyond whatever concept of love we know of on this planet. I just wanted you to riff on, on what you thought about when he said that. I like that analogy. I think the only thing he left out was the graham crackers. <laughs> I think you need to get the milk and the graham crackers. And the yeah. graham cracker. Okay, so the it's graham cracker. The milk. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's a real pure example. That To me, that speaks of purity of heart. Um, and you know, it's funny because people say, well, you, you love to play blues, but you also say you love to play these beautiful ballads, and which I used to do a lot with Quinn and Ia. And, uh, mm. <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, the two are so related to me. And the feeling of the blues, although it can be pretty gutsy or guttural, whatever the word is, it's still beautiful. It's a strong feeling. It's a pure feeling. And the same way with ballads uh, or beautiful jazz songs with great chords. Like, I used to love Bill Evans' uh, chords on the piano. Oh, God. They just take you to another place. But to me, it's that pure love of the warmth, of the, the warmth that's at the center of the music is what we live for. You, um... Like, uh, do, do you remember if, uh, you know, going back to our first interview when you, you know, you drank turpentine or you were All right. ready to, yeah. you know, ready to check out and, um, yes. did, did, did you have any uh, contact with God at those times? Did he come visit you? I mean, when, when did, uh, and did, and, and I guess maybe, maybe you answered this before, but you know, was there a point when that, cl that dark cloud of depression kind of at least lifted and wasn't so, so heavy in your life? Uh, I'm just wondering if you had, if you had had some sort of spiritual transmission with God when you were potentially dying. Well, I felt like God first came to me in the form of my very loving Christian mother, who showed up. I was in Tulsa when this happened, and she showed up with my dad and was just like an angel to me. Everything she said to me was just so so perfect and so loving. I don't think maybe she realized I was in such bad shape emotionally, but when she came and saw me, she did. And it was just, it was fantastic. But I would say that the time when the depression really started to leave was when I met Jimmy Hill and started playing at this little mission called The Open Door mm -hmm. in Oklahoma City. And, of course, later, as we discussed, uh, Bill Maxwell, uh, Fletch Wiley, Harlan Rogers uh, all became believers, and, and we all started a band. We, we kind of regrouped again under a very different uh, circumstance. 
I want to know how Andre Crouch wound up at that mission in. <laughs> I mean, somebody must have tipped him off that these cats were playing burning God, burning uh, spiritual music. I mean, th- that to me, you know, that is that's America. That that is like the most beautiful story that one of the most beautiful stories that I have ever documented on my program. Um, I guess before that, you know, you know, uh, I'm not going to let you get away with this because off air Max Maxwell told me that um, someone, a a pretty famous guitar player, people might've heard of him. Eric Clapton was, uh, was into the Hawk. They called you the Hawk. Uh, You know, I think, I think you were, very well admired by a lot of your peers <laughs> and I think also you just mentioned Tulsa so I'm throwing a lot at you here but were you playing in the black clubs in North Tulsa uh, we weren't necessarily uh, playing the black clubs but we were playing clubs there in Tulsa and uh, a number of them and one was rather large called the factory and we were playing at another slightly smaller club one night when we knew Eric's entourage. Uh, uh, and, and, in fact, Carl Radel, the bass player, sure. is from Tulsa. He, he came in with the group. Oh. I didn't actually go up and introduce myself to anyone, but I understood they were there. That's all I know. Well, I know you're a humble cat, but, I mean, they were coming to see the Hawk. They were coming to see you. Clapton, I mean, I guess that's the point is that you really, I think that's probably the most cool thing about, I mean, I'm just so thankful that you're still with us and, and, you know, God, obviously the message was, Hadley, you have a lot to give in this life, so you're not, you're not leaving, but I'm thankful too. Yeah. But I mean, you know, uh, like you were known to leon russell you were known to to that that group i mean that to me like i, I mean i would have been coming to see the hawk you know uh <laughs> i mean you never got buzzed by the <clears throat> did did you know at a certain point that you were somebody that was being highly admired by other luminaries and did you not believe it and how did you keep your ego i mean i think what you said before on the stage where i remember leland sklar i'm sure you worked with him um yeah you know he, he talked about going on the road with phil collins you know and it's thirty thousand people screaming your name every night and you know sklar's got the big beard they're probably yelling about sklar and then he's like i get off the road and i'm cleaning up dog poop in the backyard you know i'm just a regular cat you know, and it's like, it's so, and you know, it's, it's so easy to be at peace when you are financially secure, when you're healthy and you can just be humble enough to be like, wow, how lucky am I? How blessed am I to be put on this path? Um, yeah. and it's so hard today for younger cats who might have incredible technique or facility but they don't have the financial security within music to really feel at peace. It is a yeah. major crisis, man. It's a it's a major because so many soulful cats um, don't have a chance to really open their soul because they're they are so insecure and rightfully so about how they're going to sing for their supper. And it's really an issue. And I. I'm not saying there's any quick fixes to it. It's just, it's part of my... Uh, I think it's worse now than when I was growing up. Big time. And it was pretty bad then. You know, I had some very good friends, uh, talented musicians, one in particular that I encouraged to come to L.A. And he came, and you know what? After about eight months, he just starved, and he he had to go back home. And I felt so bad because I thought this this guy's as good as anyone out here, but there's a lot of factors. Uh, there's the factor of uh, how well do you get along with producers and people in the studio. There's politics uh, in every aspect of life. There's politics. I have no doubt. I mean, and that's something I don't. Yeah, it's kind of like boy, he was impossible to work with. He's not getting a call back. You know, I get that kind of stuff. <laughs> 
You know, right. like uh, it doesn't matter how good you are. Although, you know, I mean, it it runs the gambit. I mean, did you feel at a certain? I know, like JJ Kale, like you know, I didn't. I'm not that uh, tuned up on the Tulsa crew outside of Keltner, but a lot right. of those cats moved back to Tulsa. Like they were not. I mean, I'm not saying that it was the sole reason, but did you feel like? Did you feel like like did, that you fit into Southern California, or how? When did you? It seems like part of me feels like you never really left Oklahoma City. Well, that's true, because I had so many friends out here from Oklahoma that, and that I had played with and learned how to play with, you know, back there. But uh, I felt like I fit in pretty well. I, I got fairly accustomed to the studio thing, but the thing I always hated the most was the drive to L.A. and back, the rush hour traffic. Where were you living? Uh, Orange County. I always lived in Orange you County. You were out in OC, so that was a drag. It's probably worse today, but yeah, I mean, it was a drag then, uh, the commute. Yes, it was a drag, and, uh, you know, it caused me to get mild ulcers. I had to start taking medication. That was just the traffic. Uh, the sessions, of course, you're making pretty good money, so you you want to do a good job. You don't want to make a bunch of mistakes, so you got that pressure as well, but it was mainly the traffic that got to me. <laughs> I love it. Howard Roberts said that uh, he had a seminar and he there was a question period and people asked him, what's the hardest part about being a studio musician in L.A.? And he said, finding a parking place. <laughs> and he was right. You know, <laughs> he's more he I mean, he, he would be he would be just. Um, aghast at the situation today with trying to find parking. It was bad then. It was much worse now. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, did you get to, um, it's so interesting because like we talked about Louis Shelton before and, uh, you know, LC and parks, but I mean, did you, did you get to play sessions with, with guys like Tedesco, that original Wrecking Crew guitar players, Barney Kessel or or Howard. I mean, did you wind up um, on? St- I mean, because like you know, there you tended to get put into certain groups. I mean, like you know, Tackett would wind up with Lee Rittenauer, and you know, of course, you know, Tackett. We grew up with him in Oklahoma. Oh, City. dude, I was going to ask you about Joe Davis. Does that name ring a bell? Oh, yeah. Eddie Davis, Joe Davis, yes. Now, who, who? because, I mean, that was the whole thing. He uh, Tackett was playing with him. They got picked up by this uh, Malaysian singer, and the next thing you know, they're out in Hawaii. And, and, uh, and, and Ta- oh, is that Taj Mahal, are you talking about? No, I'm going to get the – I'm going to queue up the uh, the story. Okay. But, but but the point is that when they wound up on a tour, a, a tour of Hawaii and, and Tackett was playing a tune, and who's walking by in, like, these uh, – in this in these suits uh i'm just going to read you this uh this story it's a little bit long but i i think it's worth it he said um i moved to oklahoma city with this amazing musician named joe davis he was a multi-instrumentalist and a teacher at the college we had a show band i wouldn't call it a rock and roll band you'd play caravan real fast i was playing drums He would bring me up and say, play Shadow of Your Smile on the trumpet, and I'll play drums. Everybody had little features, and then we'd back up a floor show of grade C talent like Don Cherry, the singer, two Jacks and a Jill, magicians and belly dancers. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Oh, man. Now you're really bringing it out. I know. I'm flooding you, man. They Jim were. Lawson, yeah. yeah <laughs> they, I had they, a on her when I was about 14. No, we're going to get to all of that with you. I just wanted. This is an amazing story. They would come in for a two-week show at this gig we had at a supper club. It was like Ricky Ricardo going down to the club. I would watch the I Love Lucy show and say, I want to go to the club like Ricky. I have many. I had my drums all set up. All I had to do was come in, sit down, and play the show every night. During the third or fourth year of college, this Filipino act named Moses and the Highbrows came through. After their run, he came up to me and said, we need a musical director. I was getting really antsy. I had been taking acid by then. I said, what the hell? Let's go. I gave my notice to Joe and hit the road. Uh, they, the U.S. government was after me to get me drafted, so it was time. We went to Florida, played a couple of weeks, and then we went to Honolulu, and we're playing in an open-air nightclub. Jimmy Webb had just gotten his first money from Up, Up, and Away, and My Beautiful Balloon 
<clears throat> and uh, I had uh, by the time I get to Phoenix, I had heard these two I records. Jimmy were one of my great heroes. I had heard those two records and said, wow, this is some different stuff. By the time I got to Phoenix, doesn't have a chorus, it's all verses. I'm playing a pre-show thing, and I was playing Ode to Billy Joe because it had just come out and was considered the hippest thing. Jimmy's walking down the street. He hears me playing, and he whispers to his buddy, hey, that's Ode to Billy Joe. The guy said, no, it isn't, because I was playing a solo. Jimmy recognized the change and said, I'll bet you five bucks that's Ode to Billy Joe. The guy comes running into the club and asks me, what was the song you just played? I said, Ode to Billy Joe, and he goes running back out of the club. About an hour later, these two dudes come in to the club, and they're all dressed in white. After the show, this guy gets me over uh, to his table and says, there's something I want to talk with you at my hotel across the street about. I said, cool. He said, can you come by after the show? I said, sure. I go back on the bandstand to the, my piano player and said, hey, dude, this guy's got some great LSD. We're going to score. I go, over uh-huh. to, I go over to the hotel room thinking I'm going to score, and this guy says, hi, I'm Jimmy Webb, the songwriter. I said, holy cow, man, you're Jimmy Webb. He said, I'm putting this group together. I got some friends from high school, and I got this singer. We're all living at this house, so I want you to come to L.A. and hang. Basically, the long and the short of it is, Tack had left all his stuff with the band in Honolulu and moved to Jimmy Webb's house, and the rest is history. You know, and that is, and so, I mean, that to me was, uh, were you playing those shows for belly dancers and flamingo uh, and magicians? And I mean, that was very par for the course for a lot. Well, I, yeah. I had worked uh, with Jesse Davis hmm. uh, a number of times. That Back then we were just calling him Eddie. Uh, but he, he always was a great blues player, so I immediately was attracted to his his music. And he had a band, a humorous kind of name, uh, Joe Banana and his Bunch. Yes. And their motto was music with appeal. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible, but the whole thing was kind of a joke because we were playing uh, like fraternity parties, sorority parties, and... And we were just playing blues. They wanted to dance, but we didn't care. We just played blues shuffles and stuff. And uh, oh, I had a great time. I only did it maybe five or six times, but it was great. Do you feel like some of like the ability to, um, I don't know, improvise on the spot? Uh, I mean, I, I just remember interviewing guys like Mike Maynary, great vibes player from New York, and he... He was with Buddy Rich in 61, uh, and they were going on like a U.S. tour of all these Middle Eastern countries that were basically still in the dark. I mean, Afghanistan, I mean, they'd show up, they were taking these prop planes over there, and like, they'd show up and like, you know, they'd play maybe, I mean, they'd play for a woman who had, who had birds coming out of her shirt, a juggler, Buddy Rich would be tap dancing, they'd play that, and then maybe they'd play a 45-minute set of just jazz standards, and then this crowd of very amazing, simple people, they had no idea what they were taking in, you know, but, but they were, but it was all this diverse, you know, sort of music. Sometimes you had to hit the moves of the dancers. Did did you, did you feel like that played a role in sort of just being yourself more? Um, You know, you weren't so many cats today, they grow up, and they're they're playing in their room. They're they're playing by themselves. And I feel like when you have the opportunity to play and then react to people, hit their moves in all these different settings, it just allows you to be you more. I mean, did you have those opportunities to play? I'm not saying you played, uh, you know, medicine shows or you know, rabbit foot minstrel shows or things like that. But uh, you know, did you? Did you have opportunities to play in these in these multi-entertainment sort of settings? Yes, I've done a few of those. Uh, there used to be an amusement park uh, called Spring Lake in Oklahoma City, and they had a outdoor amphitheater, and uh, they had all kind of acts come through. And I, I got to play bass with the Righteous Brothers. That was a huge thing for me when I was 15. Wow. Uh, because... They didn't bring their own rhythm section. Uh, they brought their drummer and their guitar player, but no bass. And uh, I was recommended, and I said, well, I don't read music, but I know all your songs by heart. <laughs> and they said, well, let's do it, you know? And Magic. so what What a thrill that was. 
and uh, Jan and Dean, <laughs> believe it or not, came through town, and they had a band they hated. And they asked me to put together a little group to back them up. And that's a long story, but... Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, no, no, I, I don't care about... I, I need to hear about... They they came in and fired their band, or they had no band? They had a band, but the band was so bad that they actually stopped the band. They said, quit playing. Uh, Jan, who was kinda, he was kind of like the leader of the group. He said, quit playing. I just want to speak the lyrics. That'll be better than you... You playing the music. Oh, my. That must have been a train wreck. Oh, it was terrible. Oh, my gosh. And I, I happened to be at that show, and so I went up and talked to him afterwards. I said, listen, my band knows all your stuff. Because back in Oklahoma City, way back then, I think I was 15 or 14, uh, you know, we were doing all the surf stuff, you know, Beach Boy stuff. And uh, I said, my band already knows your stuff. We can come right in. And we had a rehearsal at their hotel, and they said, it sounds good to us, let's do it. Well, the other band found out that we, none of us were members of the Musicians Union. So while we were playing our warm-up set, they had the Pinkerton police come out. And understand, all my uh, school buddies are there. <laughs> right. Still, right? right. And they come out and pull us off like a bunch of criminals. Off the stage. What were you being accused of? Not being a member of the union and playing at Spring Lake. Okay, so, and I guess uh, Jan and Dean, as the leaders, couldn't really do anything about that? Or, I mean, yeah. couldn't do anything because this was the authority of the whole park, the Pinkerton police. Sure. They were the authority. So. <laughs> I don't know what happened afterwards. I, I assume they got their their old band back out there to see what they could do. But <laughs> that was a memory. Wait, wait, hold on. So actually, you were were you arrested? No, not technically arrested. I think they thought we were too young to really arrest us, but we were just escorted out of the park for breaking their law. <laughs> Dude, Hadley Hawkinsmith <laughs> causing ruckuses. <laughs> Dude, I love, you know, that is the, well, I, it's kind of a track. So you, you actually never had a chance to play with them, is that, I guess, right? No, yeah. only rehearse with them. And I thought it sounded <laughs> really good. I bet it did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, while we're telling stories, I want to share one other thing. Please. Bill might like for me to share this. Uh, we were playing at a club called the Oriental Club in Lawton, Oklahoma. There's an Air Force base there, so a lot, of, a lot of people came from the Air Force to check out the bands. And um, the club owner had an inside contact with the police. And I was 14 years old at the time, playing with an organ trio called the Voodoo Men. And um, we got a heads up that the vice squad was coming to raid the club because they'd heard a lot of underage people were getting into the club. So we thought, what are we going to do? We just got three pieces. If I can't be up there playing guitar, it's just going to be like a naked band. And so we figured out a way. The, the ceiling had these little uh, asbestos tiles you could push out. Sure. So we pushed a few of them out and put a piece of plywood up there so I could lie flat in the dark this is in the summer. It's probably 115 degrees up there. And I played the first two sets, you know, with my head down to the plywood so I could hear the band playing guitar up there in the dark. Wait a minute. You were, you were parallel to the, you were not standing up. You were laying down. No, I was lying down. Yeah. I don't even know there was room to stand up. Um, this is hysterical. Just, just so you could avoid any wrath from Vice Squad. Is that, is that it? That's right. And 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 they came in. They came in, but they never noticed anything was wrong. Even there was a big guitar chord coming down from the ceiling. Oh, this we is made priceless. it through the first two sets, and then I could come down and cool off. <laughs> um, and so that is epic. That is beyond epic, man. So, I mean... Well, I got one more voice for you, Hadley. I want to put, okay. put this in. Yeah. I, I think it's going to start with me asking a question, but just wait, and, and then he'll answer. Okay. 
of of your mentors, uh, you got a break and overcame it and, and got to be, you know, put you on the path that you're on today? Well, I understand that, uh, uh, that uh, we can't do anything alone. Uh, we need each other. And um, we borrowed from each other. We, we got each other gigs, and we pointed to gigs, and we pointed to the musicianship that uh, that uh, other was presenting. But um, I didn't know which direction my potential success was going to come. It was John Hammond that made the difference. He heard me at a at a R and B club. I was playing behind Go Go Girl, and James Brown used to come down from the Apollo because it was right down the street, and he would sit in with us uh, many nights. And he asked me to join his organization. You know, he wanted me to open his show. That's what he said. Oh, wow. And my crazy answer was, and I remember I was talking to one of the greatest performers of his time. I told Mr. Brown, I said, well, you know, Mr. Brown, we're jazz musicians, you know. <laughs> Can you imagine me <laughs> saying that to a man who was rich and was offering us the opportunity of a lifetime to open his show? Wow. And I said that to him. Well, I paid the price. It took me 11 years to get in a position where I was, I was going to have some importance, in, you know, in my career. But John Hammond said it back then. He said, I perceive that you do a lot of things. You're very versatile and you do them all well. He said, but if you, get, if you are a, a known as a jazz musician first, your career will have longevity. And he turned out to, that turned out to be the, the, the real truth of the matter. Hadley, you want to take a, a stab at who that is? Oh, my gosh. You know, when I first heard the voice, it sounded like a black singer that... Uh, he that is really, a Well, he, he was originally a doo-wop singer, turned into a, a world-renowned uh, guitar player. Um, uh, that, was, that was my interview with George Benson. Oh, my gosh, that was George Benson. And George, no George, I mean, this is crazy, Hadley, because, like, he was a doo-wopper and younger. I mean, if you think about Pittsburgh, Billy Strayhorn, Ahmad Jamal, Booker Irvin, uh, Dodo Momoros, I mean, the heavy, Ray Brown, I mean, the most ridiculous cats came out of Pittsburgh. And George was younger than them, and they used to, uh, they would not, I'm not even those guys per se, but he was like, they didn't. They didn't want him to play the guitar. He was a singer. They didn't let him play with them a lot. He was playing behind go-go dancers. James Brown was offering him gigs, and you know he was fixate. I, I always find it interesting too. Like I mean, when you do find that niche between being an artist and then having massive commercial success, what he was basically saying was. Brown approached him in 65, and I guess Breezen came out in 76, and the rest is kind of history. But, you know, right. you know, like I it, it just I it, what I the question I had asked him was, can you talk about a time in your life when you faced adversity and how you overcame it and how you made it strong, how he made how it made you stronger? And he was talking about that er, those early years playing with, um, you know, Dr. Lonnie Smith and Lou Donaldson playing in these organ quartets and he play with uh, Jack McDuff. That's the, I'm sorry. McDuff. McDuff, McDuff was the cat. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he just said, you know, guys were pointing out gigs to other people. Um, they were helping other people find gigs. Now it was a matter of the work going around, but it's so, to me, it is, it is the, the essence of leadership, uh, especially in this time. I know that, you know, you're not, you know, burning in the studios the way you once were. I just wanted you to talk about outside of even sunlight and and those those cats, just the idea of camaraderie and helping, and that it's it's up to all everyone coming out of coronavirus. If we really right. if we really want live, not just live music, but a, a live touring circuit with the ability for you know. Um, uh, Cats to not just tour, but to 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 be paid for their work. I mean, it's it, it, you know, Dizzy. Those guys used to get furious when people would say, "Oh, you're playing music, man." They're like, "We're not playing, man. We're not playing anything. This is work." And it's we've gotten so far away from that. But yeah. I do believe that it comes down to as much power as they have is that every the musicians, especially, looking out for each other. And I kind of wanted you to just talk about. 
the qualities of leadership that whether you're the biggest star like a Neil Diamond or, you know, just an up-and-coming creative, you know, how to stay together as a group and how to lead uh, so that we can actually revitalize live music in our culture and as a profession. Right. Well, you know, the, the first thing you mentioned having a group, that's so important. You know, you're you darn mean, right. Bands are hard to come by these days. Yeah, you see so many solo artists now. You're right. That's a very, and it's like that's everyone's dream now is to be a solo artist. Uh, the thing that, that I loved was being a part of something that was bigger than myself. And, you know, that's what playing in a band is all about, especially playing with in a big band like, say, Neil Diamond's band, where everything is so arranged and we each play our part. There's something very satisfying about being a part of something that's really big like that. And I don't think you're ever going to get that thrill just playing solo. Right. Um, so um, have you, like, do you play, have you played in your church? What, what kind of gigs have you played since coronavirus? Do you play anymore or do you, and, or do you, and do you miss playing at all? I still play live. Uh, there's a band uh, of people that I grew up with. I used to go to church with them all. It's not a necessarily a Christian band. They don't do, they just do pop music. But uh, it's very fun to play with that group. They're called Point Made, and really nice people and a good group. They all sing, and uh, I happen to play bass in this group. Oh, although I man. Have, I have doubled on guitar as well. But, man, I love playing the bass. I get to go to town. So it's just a four-piece band, so there's a lot of room to, to wail on the bass. What, what, what is the... What, I mean, has live music ever really stopped in Oklahoma City? Based, I mean, because I know that in certain states, um, live music is at least in some form still really happening. Well, I think it varies from city to city. Uh, I always used to think uh, I'd love to live in Austin because there's so many places to play. But I understand even that has changed somewhat it has i i know that uh yeah no you know what i this is the hadley we're gonna have to do set three because there's other things we need uh -oh. <laughs> I, I mean as long as you're having fun i don't i mean i don't want well, to i am yeah. having fun I, i'm just kind of losing my voice but that's okay i'll be in better shape for the next one yeah no it, the the i wanted to ask you this i mean that was the other thing about omar in my interview with him um on those Muir on um, White Horse and those records. I mean, there was not a litmus test if you were Christian or not to play on those records. And there came, oh, no. a, the, but there did come a point in the studio when that did become a, it became an inside job. Like you had to be of Christian faith. Is that isn't that right? Uh, very seldom did I see that. Almost never did I see that. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I thought that that over time, I'm talking like early 80s at that point, you know, it became very um, exclusive uh, that, you know, where before you might see uh, any types of cats playing on records that might be considered Christian, contemporary Christian records. But then after a while it was, oh, actually, you have to be Christian as well. But you're you're saying no. Well, maybe you're referring to something like the Maranatha praise records, which mm -hmm. were very popular. And I did play on a lot of those. I would say in that instance, they would prefer you be a believer, but they didn't feel like the session was going to be defiled if you weren't. Um, but other than that, it just wasn't a big deal. I mean, the album that I co-produced with uh, Bruce Hibbard, which had a lot of uh, airplay and success, is called Never Turning Back. Yes. Uh, we used Dean Parks, who never claimed to be a believer we we used uh 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 denny belfield on bass on some songs he wasn't didn't claim to be a believer uh, you know it, it it never was that way you know we felt like uh as an example we would usually pray ask the lord to bless the recordings you know before we start sure and we would very nicely ask 
the other people there who maybe weren't Christians, if they would join us. And if they didn't feel comfortable, that's fine. And we would just have a short prayer to kind of kick the thing off. But it was never, we never wanted anyone to feel excluded. No, I mean, dude, I wish, you know, honestly, if, if everybody led their spiritual life the way you and Maxwell did, the, did I, I just feel like we'd be in, in such a more beautiful place in society, man. I, I can't, I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm just saying I hear a lot of, unfortunately, um, a lot of exclusionary stuff going on at, at, at a certain level. And, and like you said, even the music is a direct reflection of the angst and the insecurity within spirituality, the fact that it's louder, the fact that sometimes it can overpower whatever vocals there are, and then ultimately what are the messages coming out of the music? It's kind of muddled up. And uh, it's one reason I really like to – I always feel very pure, purified after this stuff. It's uh, And it gives me a lot of hope in humanity, man. I just uh, – and we just cooked through another uh, 66 minutes here. So, uh, yeah, but we'll, we'll, we got. I think we got at least one more installment to do. So I want you to rest your voice. And uh, if you have any copies of that Sunlight, uh, I'd love to get, get my hands on that. I got that, and that will be coming to you soon. Uh, in case you haven't, uh, please send me your address. Okay, I'll do it again. I will. Uh, Hadley, much love to you, man. Have a beautiful day, and uh, I'll, let, I'll, I'll reach out to you next week. Great talking to you, Jake. Always, Hadley. Be good. Bless you. Later. Bye-bye. Bye. Just another beautiful hang with a beautiful cat, Hadley Hawkins-Smith. He was preceded by Brent Rademacher. A couple of real spiritual musicians, and we can only hope moving forward they'll carry the day. That's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you later. <laughs>